podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hope where not much around Old Trafford. Eric Ten Hag's United era begins with defeat as transfer issues continue to swirl around the club. A very warm welcome to you wherever you are around the world to Series 8, Episode 4 of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast with me, Harry Robinson and Jack Tate. Alongside me as always, we're reflecting today on a 2-1 defeat to Brighton and Hove Albion. Two links in the transfer market that leave a strange taste in the mouth. Uh, the first game for the under-21 this season and what's to come over the next week. Brentford away in a Saturday 5.30pm kickoff. Let's dive in straight away, Jack. It was hardly, uh, well, it was the opposite of the ideal start to the season. It was a game which exposed our flaws in midfield, in defence, up front, in goal, uh, everywhere. It was a game that exposed our poor performance thus far in the transfer market. There are still three weeks to go, but the fact... Ultimately, the fact that Anthony Martial missing had quite so much impact on this United team shows how not only have we not progressed in the transfer market, but we have in fact regressed about three years as well. And it looked like it on the pitch. I think the, the, the most damning thing I could say about this performance, the way that this felt watching it, was that you could have told me, if you'd have shown me this game with no context and told me it was in April of this year, I would have believed you. Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, we thought that we were in kind of the, the low point. Yeah, this felt eerily similar. I, I know I'm being a bit hyperbolic there. It definitely wasn't quite as bad as a lot of the stuff that we saw under Ranić. but the way that we played, the manner in which we performed, the style that we played with was eerily similar to a lot of those bad days on, under Ralph Ranić. And it did feel like you sort of came to Old Trafford, watched this game and not much had changed. You know, yeah, we had Martinez and Eriksen in the team who obviously weren't there last season, but... You know, they aren't exactly transformative signings. They're, they're, I think both did okay. Hopefully will be good players for United, but certainly don't massively change how you feel about this team. And we were making a lot of the same mistakes, a lot of the same issues that have plagued us, not just last year, but for the last three or four years. And so it felt very much like yeah. a bit of Groundhog Day at Old Trafford. Yeah, there was a nice quote from a random fan I saw on Twitter or somewhere else who just said, at the end of last season, I was incredibly angry. Having taken a couple of months to reflect, I'm still incredibly angry. Uh, I think it's worth us dissecting the game before uh, in, in a bit of detail and working out, because it, yeah, you're right, it feels like it was very similar to April or to any time over the last 11 months or so. Bear in mind that August under Solskjaer was okay last year. Does it Does it actually, it, was that actually the case? Because as one of our patrons, Corey Lennox, points out, we came out with some real intent and Bruno Fernandes had a really good chance within the opening stages. And had he scored that, we might be speaking with a different tone entirely, he says. So he says, what what can we take from the start of the match to make sure that we're not having this same conversation next week? And it's an interesting point because although we conceded a chance after 17 seconds, which was uh, just having had all this build up and uh, and having been back at Old Trafford for the first time in 90, 100 days, however long it was, and and the excitement and the great reception the team got coming out, great reception 10R got to, to have 15 seconds in a pass played in and 17 seconds a, a shot come away from it was... Uh, a nervous moment and a slightly unsurprising one. But after that, 
the next 10 or 15 minutes were, there were, there were some nice things there and, and actually also some really interesting things. There was obviously no focal point. Anthony Martial injured. Edison Cavani has left. Mason Greenwood is obviously unavailable still. Cristiano Ronaldo was chosen not to play, whether because of his disciplinary problems or because he's just not fit enough for 90 minutes, as Ten Hag suggested. We don't know yet, but obviously there was no focal point there. And so instead, Ten Hag tried some interesting things with a combination of Ericsson, Fernandez, McTominay, Sancho and Rashford. Yeah, he did. It was was noticeably different to a lot of what we've seen in pre-season, which was a big shock to me, to be honest. And I, I, think we'll, <laughs> I definitely will come on to that in sort of a more negative sense later. But, you know, it, it, was, it was interesting to start with. It was very noticeable how far forward McTominay was playing, especially when we had the ball. His starting position was yeah. still, you know, roughly what you would expect, but he was getting very, very far forward whenever we attacked. Quite, of, quite often he was the most advanced player down the right-hand side, more advanced than Sancho, which was, again, a shock considering that down the wings has been really our most our most fruitful avenue for making good attacks in pre-season. Sancho and Rashford had been two of our best performers, especially Sancho and Darlow had had really good pre-season together, seemed to be building a really good relationship there. So it was a bit shocking to see Sancho coming quite deep. Darlow wasn't really getting forward too much and McTominay really being the one to, stre- to stretch the game on that right-hand side. Yeah, Ericsson was dropping very deep, which, you know, kind of makes just sense on, um, McTominay and Bruno. Yeah, just on McTominay and Bruno, it was... As if the old formation in football before the 30s was a, a 2 3 5, and you'd have like that outside. So you'd have the, the two wingers in Sancho and Rashford, and then the uh, two inside forwards, in this case, McTominay and, and Fernandes were kind of fulfilling that role. And then there wasn't really. It wasn't completely that kind of central figure to this, which was a bit of the problem. But it was interesting that some Tomine would play just inside Sancho on the right wing, Fernandez just inside Rashford on the left wing. And so effectively got those wingers there to stretch Brighton's defence, which makes sense, especially given they were playing with a, a three-man back line and two quite attacking wing backs. And then McTominay and Fernandez there to make those runs into the box where the space is being created. And in fact, in the same attack, that one that, that led to the uh, Fernandez mischance that he, he really should have scored and, and leant back and hit over the bar. But just before that, the, the chance comes from McTominay running into the right side of the area and having a shot that's blocked. And then the ball falls to Bruno coming from the left side of the area. So there was clearly potential there for this to work and it did work on that one occasion. But as I think uh, you were kind of alluding to there, it it took away the impact and quality of the two wingers. And Rashford has been not consistent. Sancho wasn't consistent last year, but both had good pre-seasons. And Sancho especially, we know, is probably the most talented player in this team in terms of creating chances really regularly. Yeah, I, I think I think the idea, which makes some sense, was that... Brighton were obviously playing with three three centre-backs. And when you play three at the back, often the wide centre-backs aren't really occupied. They can effectively act as a second and sometimes third mm. defender of the main striker, which United obviously didn't have in this case. So I think the idea was that if Ericsson's dropping deeper, you could hope to maybe drag one of those centre-backs into midfield and then have the wing-backs focusing on Sancho and Rashford and then McTominay and Bruno being the ones to be occupied then by the wide centre-backs. So then you'd make sure that everyone in the Brighton defence had someone to mark, which then makes it easier with some good movements and clever passing to get past them because they don't have that spare man all the time, which you normally face when you play against three slash five at the back. Yeah. I think the problem was just that, well, on the left-hand side, we just never really got anything going well enough. You know, the the three of Shaw, Fernandes and Rashford, for whatever reason, we just never really managed to get any play effectively moving forward down the left-hand side. And on the right-hand side, where we did have a little bit more success, I think it's just that, 
as, as much as the system was good to get a, a United player in some good positions, most of the time that United player was McTominay. And yeah. really, out of all of our midfielders and forwards, McTominay is probably the last person you would want on paper in those kind of positions. So we did actually manage to get ourselves into, into some decent openings, but we never really had the right people in the right spaces. And the big problem was that even taking away who it was in that space, even if it was McTominay, he'd often pick the ball up and then there'd be no one in the box because Ericsson yeah. had dropped deeper. Fernandes and Rashford were too far on the other side of the pitch. Sancho had was had stayed wide, as I'm sure he'd been instructed to, because this formation, Darlow wasn't getting forward as much. So you'd end up with McTominay on the right edge of the penalty area with basically no one to play it to. And then you also had, if you, if you take this from a... Uh, it, in, in the transitions between defence and attack, that also leaves... So Ericsson was dropping deeper, but ultimately Fred was the single midfielder which obviously I think everyone will understand those immediate issues to, to that just as a basic concept. But you also, so you had the reason that Dallow and Shaw weren't seen in the wide areas quite so much is they were coming inside to kind of support Fred in that role. Again, this all makes sense, but it feels too much like it, it's neither what you'd expect United to look like in the long run. Nor is it playing to the team's strengths, and I, I this isn't really, this game was not is not a one to criticise Tenaglis, but just in terms of that, it it meant you came away frustrated because you could see weaknesses in the team, but you also thought this isn't like a you couldn't see that identity that we want to see be a bit being built uh, immediately, and even if it's going to cause United to lose games to begin with, and that makes it a bit frustrating. But I, I just thought, especially Sancho. Rashford touched the ball 35 times all game. Sancho, 40. That's not even a touch every two minutes for two of our most talented players. And and especially Sancho, he, he creates so many chances, even if they're not turned into clear-cut chances or, or goals, which was obviously the problem last season. And he's he's just, he, he's really good at that. And I also think the problem with both of them is, and this doesn't help, that, especially in the second half, that Brighton sat back quite a lot and, and didn't play a high line. But so often when Sancho is receiving the ball and Rashford, they're receiving it, say, four or five yards outside the penalty area, facing up to, to a man uh, and having to get past them. And there's, there's another person behind the defender they're trying to take on as well. And that's... It, it just feels like we need to give give them that ball earlier and let them create chances earlier on in the, in the attacking move and see what happens. And then it's so that they have that space to run in behind after so that they have a bit more room to work with. And it seems to me like our wingers for a couple of years now have only ever had tiny spaces to work some magic in. And that's why they've underperformed for quite a long time. Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying there. I think, like, we've said this so many times, United, for the last three or four years, have always performed best when we've had space to work in, right? And so that's why, we, especially under Solskjaer, we were at our best when we were playing counter-attacking football, mm. because that was when we did have the most space, we had all that area that we could work in. You know, the problem is that's not going to be the case all the time. Teams aren't just going to give us, you know, half of Old Trafford to run in. We, we need to figure out how we play when the space is more condensed and when teams aren't giving us, you know, so much space in behind them to work in. And, and that is something that I think we hoped and we still hope that Ten Hag will improve us in. And we were better at it during pre-season as well. We found ways to get Sancho in particular really, really involved in our build-up much earlier. And I, I mean, a big thing that I noticed pre-season was that Sancho was drifting centrally a lot more as well and in very deep areas. Maybe that's, mm. that was just sort of one-off occasions rather than any sort of plan, but there are ways that you can obviously get them more involved. I think going back as well, just to what you were saying, Harry, on sort of Darlow and Shaw and why they weren't getting forward as much and leaving Fred in the pivot, you know, worried about what's coming the other way. You know, this kind of brings us nicely onto 
looking at the defence and how we did defensively and the goals that we conceded yeah. because, you know, that's where the second goal comes from. You have Darlo and Sancho in the corner putting the pressure on Brighton, trying to keep them in there, which is fine. I have no problem with that at all. But then they both get beaten by a clearance that manages to fall to a Brighton player. You've then got McTominay, who's our furthest forward player at that point. He's in the Brighton's penalty area as that ball gets cleared, marking their centre-back. You've then got Ericsson as the only other midfielder besides Fred. And Ericsson, you know, defensively, is not, that's not his game. So he gets beaten very easily. And then you're left with Fred, Maguire, Martinez and Shaw against, mm. you know, a wave of Brighton players coming forward in the counter-attack. And that's that's where that second goal comes from. So that that was that's the trade-off with, you know, this formation well, that we were trying to play. Was also, that. what's... Sorry, just... Uh, it's, 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 reminded me when you said McTominay was the first one forward that what's especially strange about that is that seems like there has rarely been the right role for Donny van der Beek in this United team that seems like the right yeah, one no, of the player making those late runs into the box and, and kind of playing off the striker obviously there wasn't actually a striker there but that seems like the van der Beek role that he played very successfully as Ajax and, and that people have spoken about a lot so it because it, it, in my head I was thinking has he played McTominay there to kind of fill that role until he can get someone to play in that role and I thought actually that is van der Beek's role why, why is he not there but a lot of this was this is yeah this is obviously a work in progress and and what was maybe it's a good thing but a lot of the problems here were individual mistakes so for the second goal I mean Fred <laughs> uh, had, a, had a tough task in that single midfield role but just a lack of concentration and focus and from the moment that Pascal Gross passes inside on the left wing uh, Fred run past, runs past him and then from that moment he doesn't look over his left shoulder where Pascal Gross is still running behind him for a full eight seconds and the eight second mark is where De Gea pushes Solly March's shot away and Pascal Gross is there to react quickly Fred is not he's looked over his right shoulder but not his left and his reaction time is way slower anyway and he's just kind of how many times have we seen us concede goals over the last 18 months to two years where the ball is played back into the box or the ball, a loose ball comes in the box and there is a, there's basically a spare United player who is not marking anyone and is just kind of waiting to see how the move progresses and that was the the Fred roll and it was also Maguire goal in the first role in the first, the Maguire role in the first goal to be fair, <laughs> tongue twister. Well, yeah, I mean, these are goals that we've seen carbon copies of so many times in the last few years cutbacks and then these loose balls in the box have been our kryptonite for so long because we just seem basically it seems like whenever a United player isn't actively near the ball they suddenly become incapable of tracking players and it happens so often we give players so much time and space in our own penalty area on way too many occasions Uh, there was actually a great rundown of well, not, not a rundown, but a great way to sum up the fact that uh, how bad we were at this. I saw people on Twitter blaming De Gea for the save. And I understand he, he did push it out, but he pushed it to the side. It's not like he pushed it right He pushed it to the place yeah. it's meant to go, really. Yeah, De Gea pushed it to the exact place where he's supposed to push it in that situation. And then pretty much straight away in the second half, we had a great example being shown by Brighton of how to what to do in that situation because Ericsson had a shot from a very similar angle. Sanchez made an almost identical save to De Gea. It goes to pretty much the exact same, exact same point out to the side. And Ronaldo is trying to follow in there, but I think it was Veltman was right there to clear it. <laughs> it's not it's not really yeah. anything for De Gea to do there. It's for it the defenders to be aware that, oh, there's a shot coming in across the goalkeeper. There's a good chance there's a good 
a rebound coming in here. That's, yeah. that's like day one defending. That's like under 12s know that. Yeah, the slight, I mean, the slight difference is that that, that Ericsson chance was after, there'd just been a, a cross before that and it had come out to Ericsson as far as I remember, whereas Brighton's was on the counter-attack. So there is a slight difference in the, the numbers back for Brighton. And that, that was kind of the point in the second half, wasn't it, that Brighton, because Brighton were tuning up and and... Yeah, deservedly. So just about, if, well, they deserve to be ahead. I don't know if they deserve to be two goals up by half time, but Brighton were deservedly leading and could forego attacking in the second half and have a well-drilled defence with numbers and, and little attention to attack and be compact and everything. And they did deal with everything except an, an average set piece. So I, I guess there's a slight difference in the chances, but I guess the point in isolation is forget how many numbers were there. Veltman reacted quickly, whereas Fred didn't know Pascal Gross was there, didn't react quickly, just wasn't on his toes and, and was kind of just a floating, a futile floating midfielder. And and yeah, this, these are the basics. And I, I wonder how long it'll take Ten Hag to, to, to change things or to replace those who, who he can't change. The second half was... The, the title of this episode, by the way, Harry, Floating Futile Fred. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to pin it all on Fred because he had a, <laughs> he had a difficult task. But it, this game did just show so many weaknesses. Uh, the second half was interesting. Obviously, United scored, but it was a, a fortunate set piece error from Brighton. There were no, yeah, I mean, I can't think of any clear cut chances. Uh, there was a Rashford one on the on the volley after an Ericsson cross, but that's a really difficult difficult one to finish. And there was the one on one where it was it was maybe it w- it was given as offside, but and it was very very tight. Uh, yeah. like whether it would have been given on VAR, right? But so he, I, missed, he got saved. Anyway. Okay, so I, I I didn't see the replay in the ground. I, it looked offside immediately as it happened. It, w- it was very very close. I, I'm not sure if it would have been overturned, but it, that's it was interesting. Very, very close. I had no idea that that was uh, even debatable. But yeah, he really. I mean, he really should have finished that, but. Uh, I remember at the time not being so annoyed because I was so certain it was offside. So uh, I'll maintain that opinion just for the the calmness of of my well-being. (laughs) Um, In terms of second half, Ericsson better from deep. Uh, Martinez won rash penalty area challenge, but there were some, he showed a bit of quality on the ball, as did Maguire, who I thought was excellent, actually. Uh, Yes, definitely some blame for the first goal that can be shared around. But yeah, I thought uh, basically the blame of the first goal is the reason that Pascal Gross is free is because Shaw's gone to cover Lalana, who Maguire's failed to be with. And Martinez has also gone to cover Welbeck, who's got past Maguire. So there's definitely some blame there, but especially on the ball, Maguire was pinging outside of the boot passes and clipping balls over the top to Rashford. I thought he he looked properly confident and, and really good. And there were, apart from the goal, there were some good defensive moments as well. Yeah, I thought him and Martinez did okay for the most part. I mean, like you said, the the first goal was a bit of everything, really. Most of which does come back to Maguire eventually. I think I don't blame him for not tracking Welbeck's initial run because if you watch it, Solly March makes a good run off the back of Fred in front of Maguire. So Maguire steps out to try and cut off that pass. And then that's the exact moment when Trossam plays the pass in behind him to Welbeck. So don't have a huge problem with him not tracking Welbeck's run. The bigger thing for me is just how slowly he reacted. He turned and then sort of ambled yeah. back towards the box when really, and like like you said, that sort of set off a chain of events then. Because if he, if Maguire is in position to cut off the pass to Lalana, then Shaw can stay at the back post with Gross. Yeah. But actually what he ends up having to do is he has to go and get mark the more immediate danger with Lalana, which is the right thing to do. But the night obviously leaves Gross at the back post completely unmarked. So it's just yeah, Maguire takes some it, some blame on that. Yeah, one. it's just the signs of a defence that isn't isn't well yeah, drilled exactly. yet, and have not had enough. Don't know what the word is. 
well, I mean, it, it's training and practice, but just uh, are relying on instincts which are can often be good, but I haven't got that that training in, into where to go in those scenarios. Yeah, no, 100%. And I also think De Gea could probably have done a little bit better with that. He was very on his heels. I think he probably could have smothered that yeah. cross. But, you know, there, there, there's yeah. a lot of things it, to go into every I, I thought what was bad for De Gea was it looked like he could have been beaten at his near post and yeah, could be yeah. beaten with the cross. you got to choose one or the other, yeah. It, yeah, I get protecting the near post 100%, but it, there was actually a massive gap there had Wilbert chosen to shoot. So it, yeah. it, look, it looks bad for him. Yeah, and then, you know, outside the goal, I thought I thought they did okay. There were, you know, some clear moments where, like you said, they just need to grow as a pairing, basically. But on the ball, I think they were very good mm. for the most part. There was times where I thought they set us up really well into attacks. There weren't, there weren't quite as many of the really good line-breaking passes that we saw a lot of in pre-season, especially from Maguire and, mm. Lind- and Lindelof. You know, that was a real standout from all those games on tour that we didn't see quite as much of. But in general, so they were good. There was a lot of switches to the, especially from from Maguire out to Rashford. Again, just they just didn't really lead to much, but in, it, in itself, they were pretty good on the ball. Martinez, yeah, like you said, I think he, he, he was about what I expected. Good on the ball, very comfortable. You know, I think at times the size definitely will be a factor and you can you can see that he's he's built his career learning to be more physical to sort of compensate for the fact that he is on the smaller side as a defender. And I think he probably will, as a result of that, give away a few more fouls than most, get a few more yellow cards than most. And yeah, probably lucky not to give away the penalty in the end. That was a, a very <laughs> nice challenge. Out, outside of the box, I mean, he didn't really have many, there weren't really, I don't remember any, chances for him to show his aerial quality inside the box but actually I remember the second half in the in Brighton's half there was a couple of uh, a couple of times when he he, he beat much taller players to the ball yeah, I mean, I, we knew this from, I'm actually from I'm not actually before. that worried about his his aerial ability I think he's he yeah it's probably more on the ground the isn't it yeah yeah it's more just ground duels like if a player's he's having to resort to shoves instead of strength exactly exactly that, that's what I mean I think I don't actually think he gets bullied very often at all I think it's just that he has to do more extreme things to like to be at the same physical level as his opponent sometimes. And that means he's probably going to give away a few more fouls and get a few more yellow cards than most. But, you know, it's probably, it feels weird considering we gave away two sloppy goals, but I don't think the mm-hmm. centre-backs were that bad. It's just going to no. be a case of trying to nail down a partnership. And that, and if that is Maguire and Martinez, then that's absolutely fine. I think they, they can be as good solid pairing it's just about giving them time to to figure out you know how to play together basically yeah right let's move on to talking a bit about uh, I mean we, we've dissected the game in terms of the the tactics and mistakes and stuff but really we we know what the the cause of this defeat is and it's the failure over many years to, to sign the right players and but also this summer uh, with a new structure in place and still United go into a season without having signed a midfielder, let alone a defensive midfielder, which who we've needed for many years. We've gone in without signing a striker, despite having uh, several leave over the last six to 12 months. There are, there are other positions we could talk about, but I think those are the two, certainly the most notable. The, I, f- I found the atmosphere at Old Trafford really interesting yesterday it, and, and haven't grown up around Arsenal uh, as their kind of poor late 2000s seasons became barren years before that little run of FA Cups. It it felt so similar to that. And the lack of hope going into a new season was one of the reasons, the kind of familiarity of bad performances on the pitch. But I, you can really tell it by by the atmosphere. And particularly at the start of the new season, I found it, uh, I don't know, not surprising, but uh, kind of saddening that 
Old Trafford was a place almost from the off of, of groans and boos. And it's, to be fair, it's the same as Arsenal. It's a fundamental sadness and anger from supporters of how the club is run and a knowledge that however hard people try, it's not changing. And that this has been the case for upwards of 15 years now, but, but more notably the last nine or 10. But I, I do also think there's just a, a rise of incredibly hypercritical football fans. And we've spoken about this before and tried to work out why. And there's like social media is obviously a possibility and tied to that is the fact that every mistake is clipped out and into highlight reels, whatever. There is this sense that every moment on a football pitch has to be perfect now. And that kind of, that just transmits itself and the groans and the abuse from around me and in the rest of the stadium when a player tries something now and it goes wrong is, is mind blowing. And the reason I thought of this just then was because even with Martinez, a new signing or Ericsson, it was just this instant kind of groans and, and people kind of holding back abuse that they don't hold back when it's a player like Fred or Rashford or uh, Shaw who's been here for, or Maguire who's been here for, for longer. And I just find it, I just find it exhausting to be around and I can't imagine how exhausting it is to be the person doing that for 90 minutes instead of making some attempt to enjoy the game. But I found it interesting. But I think the comparison to Arsenal is is closer than ever before on the, on the subject of that on transfers. Uh, as one Arsenal fan I follow on Twitter said, Tim Stillman, United are entering the what about Andre Santos and part two young phase of the transfer window. Two parody-like links, Marco Arnautovic and Adrian Rabiot. Yeah, it feels it feels very much like Arsenal from sort of what two thousand and eight or nine until maybe now, and also feels quite similar to to Liverpool in in the nineties yeah. as well. I, obviously, we have a bit less insight into exactly what that was like, but for, at least from what I know of it, in a very different era, it feels very similar to what United are going through at the moment. I, and you know, I remember back when Ferguson retired, thinking about you know how long it had been since Liverpool had won had won the league and thinking it was yeah. completely impossible that United would ever go that long without winning the league again. And now here we are and you're thinking, oh God, you know, are we actually, we could be entering into that, that sort of, that sort well, of we're about to I mean, The 10 year mark is a very it, notable one. Yeah. And yeah. we are about to hit it given and, that we are so far off. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think what's frustrating is that, well, obviously which is where we are and where we are on the pitch is, is one thing, but it just seems to be the same mistakes being repeated over and over yeah. again. And I think that is what's so frustrating to me is that if we were trying something completely new and different, like I could take it. I, I, I could, un, I couldn't, when I say I could take it if we failed, because obviously it'd still be upsetting no matter what, but at least you could feel like, you know what? We tried something, it, it didn't work, but you know, we're, we're trying something new. We're trying to go in a different yeah, direction, but, uh, but it just feels like we're- it, I also think the point of this is United don't need to be innovative right now. What we need to do is just catch up with other people. So we don't need to like change, come up with a genius way of running a football club. We, we just need to follow what our rivals, our successful rivals have done. Well, yeah. And that, that's what I'm saying. That's why it's so frustrating because we're, we're not trying to do anything revolutionary and we're yeah, still failing. Yeah. Like that, like the, the, it's not difficult. Like I know obviously like people like you and I and everyone on Twitter and stuff, we all think we can run a football club and we don't know everything that goes into it, all that kind of stuff, right? But at the same time, I do genuinely believe that you could pick any United fan at random and they could do the same or probably a better job, at least of the on-pitch stuff than United have done over the last five or six years. And I genuinely, genuinely believe that. Anyone who is a genuine United fan and follows football to a decent degree, I think could probably do a better job 
on the pitch than what we've done over the last five and six years. My argument against that would be, I think, I think whoever is in that job is hamstrung just so incredibly in anything they can do. I mean, take, take this summer, for example, where whoever it is, John Murta or, or say football director, technical director or chief exec, those are three roles where they are still having to wait for sign off from the Glazer family to make signings. And if you have a football director and a manager and a technical director and a chief exec and a head of recruitment and a head of scouting, why for any other reason than a lack of faith in them or self-importance do decisions which should come under their remit have to wait until you, the Glazer family, wake up in a different country on a different time zone. United are having to wait to sign things off or to check things or to have some feedback on things to wait until the Glazers wake up. That is just, as as my brother pointed out, someone from the US said, imagine if a British NFL team were trying to sign Tom Brady and they said to his agent, oh, you'll have to wait until tomorrow because they've gone to bed. It's just, it's just not. It's just something that you you do not get in any other club, in any other sport, and it's it's incredible that it's still happening. Yeah, I mean, seeing that, I think it was James Robson that tweeted it today that time difference was a serious hindrance to United getting transfer business done. I mean, like, like you you just can't make that up. Seriously, you cannot make up that that is a, yeah. a genuine problem that Man United are having to face. Yeah, now. it's a par- like, it's a parody. Yeah, completely, completely. I mean, I'm not being funny, as is, right, but as the, are the two names we're being linked with. Yeah, but like the, the, the Glazer family own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right, in the NFL. So let's say they're trying to sign a player from the LA Rams. That's a three-hour time difference. But there's only two hours more than what we're dealing with from Manchester to the East Coast of America, where the Glazers are based. Like, what's the di- like? There, there is not much difference here. It's not like these aren't people that are used to dealing with with international business deals. You know, like these are massively successful business people that have global business empires. Like, it's just it 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 it, on, it boggles my mind that that is still something that we're having to deal with now. And that, yeah, at the same time. We have all this sign-off, like you're saying, it makes it in completely incredulous that why do we have all these football roles, like the like the chief executive, like the director of football? Why, why do we even have it if Joel Glazer is still having to sign off on everything? We have one yeah. of the most aloof owners in the league and yet still is involved to the point where he's signing off on every chat. Like, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I just think you're, you, you, you've you either got to be all in or all out, you know? And if yeah. you're all in, yeah. be fully involved day to day. And you know what? If you want to be like that, fine. Obviously wouldn't want it to be Joel Glazer, but someone else, if you want to be like that, okay. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. That's what I mean. Be around the club every single day. No, but also come, come and live in Manchester. If you want that to be a full, or, or not even Manchester, United have an office in Mayfair. You could easily, there are plenty of people who work for United who work in London. You could do that if you don't want to live in, in the rainy North. Yeah. Or, or do it kind of like how City do it and defer it to someone else day to day. If you don't want to do that. And yeah, we've yeah, got all well, we've got all the positions on paper set up, and it's just not being not being used. Yeah, I don't want to talk too. Um, I do want to rant about them. I don't want to talk too in depth about the two names United linked with Marco Anatovic, formerly of, of West Ham and Stoke, and Adrian Rabiot, formerly of PSG and currently of Juventus. Um, but I do think, and these are coming from reputable sources that United are interested in, in both of these. And I do think, even if United don't sign them, it screams of of so many problems because Odin Ogala was supposed to be a one-off and it was a one-off we quite enjoyed certainly I did actually 
because it had some fun to it. And he was the first Nigerian to play for United and he was uh, just a boy at United fan living the dream. But more than two years on, and I'm saying it, I'm laughing while I'm saying this so that I, I keep a smile on my face. We're once again signing, or we're not signing, but we we are linked with an older forward with an average Premier League pass. This is not Cavani. I mean, there was there were things wrong with the signings of Cavani, the Brimich and Ronaldo, but they're separate in, in how old they were. But this is a player with an average Premier League plus, 26 goals in 145 games for Stoke, who has spent the last two of two of the last three years playing in China. And furthermore, the idea that United are now signing people with only the right character. Well, this and Rabiot just make that look so blatantly untrue. If we sign a head case of a centre forward, a, a man who's been accused of racism towards a black player in the Netherlands, to a North Macedonia player at Euro 2020, who was forced to apologise to teammates at West Ham for getting a 33rd minute sending off an elbow on someone, who disrupted women's training sessions at West Ham, such as his disrespect for them. And he's two years older than Danny Welbeck who we sold many years ago and is doing all right at Brighton now. And then you get onto Rabiot, another average player we can find in in the summer bargain bin because his average quality is matched by another disruptive character, not aided by his very mouthy mother who creates problems at every club he goes to and with the French national team. We, we've had enough of French midfielders with noisy relatives for one lifetime. And I just, I, I also think it, this matches up with a point I made, I think in our first episode of this season, Malassia, Eriksson and Martinez are all good signings that I, and we should all be very happy with, but they were all obviously Ten Hag signings. So, and, and Arnautovic and Rabiot seem to be Ten Hag suggestions as well. So where is the input from the recruitment department? And I'm sure it's there, but clearly Ten Hag doesn't trust it at all. I, I think what's so confounding to me at the moment is that, I think it was in our first episode, I said up to 85 minutes into the game against Villa on United Tour, pretty much everything in pre-season and on that tour had gone about as well as you could have hoped yeah. up to that point. Everything since then feels like it's gone about as badly <laughs> as you could have, as you could have hoped for. And this is just the icing on the cake. Now, what, what I'm so confused about, right, is that at the start of the summer, we heard a lot about how United have this big focus on signing the right characters. You know, they've recognised that the dressing room was not a harmonious place. That was a big root cause of what's happening. We heard all these stories about Ten Hag, you know, uniting the team, making everyone eat dinner together, no phones during meals, breaking up all these cliques that had formed. Yeah. Great. You know, that all sounded like just what we wanted. So even if you think they're the right players on the pitch, which they certainly aren't, how on earth are Arnautovic and Rabiot two players with some of the clearest yeah. histories you could ever find of, you know, character flaws being a big reason, a big red flag on their CV. How on earth are they the people that you turn to? Like, and I, so I know that, especially in the Arnautovic case, Ten Hag has worked with Arnautovic before, which is why some people are saying that that might be who he's going after. But like, he has such a long history of just completely problematic behavior, not only problematic yeah. in the dressing room, but problematic socially as well. Like you said, with the, the, the racist, the racist stuff that he's come out with, the really misogynistic, sexist stuff that he's, he's uh, had labeled at him at the past as well. These things don't come out of nowhere. And it is a pattern that has been repeated with, our, with Arnautovic over and over again. And the thing is, it's not even like they're, they're great players on the pitch either. You know, yeah. like, especially in the case of Rabio. Arnautovic maybe is slightly different because I know that strikers are, are harder to find. But I, I could probably name you 10, 15 midfielders in the Premier League that are miles better than Rabiot yeah. and would likely be available. Maybe for a little bit more money. That's the that's, point though, isn't it? That, that's, that's where we are. That is, that is exactly the point is that yeah, we don't exactly. want to spend the money. But then, but then like, that also doesn't make sense in my head because we've all supposedly put up 60, 70 million pounds for De Jong. 
So the money is there. Well, yeah, but the the problem is that means then if you spend that money, you're sacrificing the art, and they don't want to do that yet. But that that shows exactly the the problem is that United aren't willing to invest enough because if there is a 100 or 120 or however big the budget, the football structure has been given to spend, despite the huge departures in wages that have gone, that means they can't sign someone else until they know for sure about Frankie Diop because then they're out of money and then they can't do Diop. And that's and that, that's kind of what we saw last season. Suddenly this money came up to sign Cristiano Ronaldo, but that money wasn't there before for a midfielder. And that's the only exception there has been to United's transfer strategy over the last 10 years where the Glazers have gone, actually, yeah, here, here you go, have the money. And I've, I think it just tells you everything you need to know. Um, we, we do need to wrap up. The, the, only, the only one thing, the only shred of comfort that I've taken from any of these stories that have come out today about Arnautovic and Rabiot is that at the very least, Rabiot is supposedly not seen as an alternative to the young, but in addition. To yeah, which is something we Which we at wanted. the very least, right, right. And, you know, if you end up with, with Rabiot and whether it's De Jong or one of these number of alternatives that United supposedly have, agree- have agreements with in principle. Yeah. You know, I, I still don't like the Rabio signing, but at least we get someone else. If it ends up just being Rabio alone, but if we end up, if we end up, if we get to the end of August and we, we've got Arnautovic and Rabio on top, of what, what on top of what we've already done this window, this summer's been yeah. a disaster. And you would have to hope that this poor performance encourages some better activity in the transfer market. But given the past, that seems painfully unlikely. Yeah. But I was ho- I was hoping to wake up this morning to you know De Jong is completed maybe there's another midfielder on the way and instead we've woken up to Arnautovic and Rabio a day after the game. I mean the, the basic truth is United have lost eight players and brought in three replacements. There is plenty of work to do. Let's go to a youth a very quick youth loan roundup and then we'll very quickly preview the Brentford game. This was the first weekend back with under-21s football as well and United headed to Arsenal and to Boreham Meadow Park Stadium where Charlie Wellens opened the scoring with a free-kick goal. Great free-kick worth watching. But United went on to lose 3-1 with goals from Kion Edwards, Marquinhos and Miguel Aziz. Uh, one before half-time from Edwards and then two immediately afterwards. In terms of the lineup, United, which is of interest at the start of the season, United started with Charlie McNeil at number nine. He was flanked by Matteo Mejia, and Damari Forson uh, with Isaac Hansen behind them and Dan Gore and Charlie Savage in midfield. Savage captain in the team. Uh, also interesting, Mark Gerardo played at left back, uh, which he's, he's normally a right back. The Spaniards had a really good time in the under-18s and made between, I can't remember exactly, but between 7 and 10, 23's appearances last season. This is a, a really interesting one to see how he kicks on. He's a bit of a leader in the 18s dressing room. Very good friends with Alejandro Garnacho and Alvaro Fernandez. And just interesting, he's been tried out in defence midfield before as well. And at centre-back, his normal position is right back. This time he played at left-back. On the subject of Spanish left-backs, Alvaro Fernandez has now played twice off the bench for Preston North End, a save drawn. Consecutive games, 0-0 against Wigan Athletic and Hull City. Both appearances off the bench for a total of 46 minutes. He started okay. We'll see how that one develops and there should be many more loan moves confirmed before the end of the window, you would think. Brentford Saturday, 5.30. We haven't got much time to previous in detail, but how do you feel going into this one? <laughs> I wish Ivan Tony was playing for the other team. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, 
it becomes an important game, right? I think I thought this Brighton game was more important than most opening games of the season. Yeah, because given we're going to lose to Liverpool. Well, exactly. We can't lose to Brentford in the middle. Well, yeah, seriously. I mean, you're going to then end up in real crisis mode already after three games in charge, which you know we just can't afford to do it. You know, Brentford are, they were kind of a strange team. I feel like you never quite know what you're going to get from Brentford. Sometimes they put in these brilliant performances where they're just all over the pitch. They look like they're, they're going to make the game hell for you, basically. But then other games, they they just they don't sort of show up. Um, so a little bit odd, but I mean, their first home game of the season against United, you know, I think they're going to be up for it. The stadium's going to be loud. It's, I think it's going to be probably kind of similar to the game against Leeds away last season where a big part of this will honestly just be mentally are the players ready for that fight because it's going to be a hostile atmosphere and more than anything, it's probably going to be a relatively (laughs) fragile bunch of United players who don't have a lot of winning to fall back on. And I think a big part of this is just going to be, are we we ready, especially the first 20, 25 minutes to, to get into the game control the game, but also be up for the physical side of it. It's going to be a big Uh, challenge. Last thing, have you got the fantasy league code to hand? If not, I'll give you a second to find it. 0M4AR5. But uh, we'll wrap up there and head into a patron Q&A. We're going to talk, what we're going to talk about in the patron Q&A, about whether Can United afford to have another building season where we give Ten Hag time or do we have any choice? uh, About which manager could get an instant result out of this, what the transfer activity needs to be, uh, and a couple of other things from Corey, Hovard and Ted in the Patreon Q&A. If you want to be a part of that, have your questions answered and hear a bonus Q&A at the end of every episode, you can uh, go to patreon.com forward slash pod, and you can find out how to sign up for as little as a pound fifty a week. And if you want to find uh, our thoughts on the Brentford game and whatever, we will be back next Tuesday morning. But in the meantime, you can find Jack on Twitter at UTD Tate. That's T-A-I-T. And you can find me at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod P-O-D at the end. Thank you very much for listening on this slightly extended version of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Have a great week. Try not to let United keep you down. Um, And we'll speak to you next week. Goodbye. Podcast Network.